Well, if you'd turn with me this evening to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, we'll read the first 17 verses, though I have a special interest this evening in the latter half of verse 9. So Isaiah chapter 7, 1 through 17, and thinking uh, especially upon the significance of the latter half of verse 9. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us before we read and and, uh, open up the word of God. Our Father and our God, we, we pray this evening that you would help us, that you would um, help your, your preacher. Your, your word is living and active in and of itself because it is the very word of God. It is unto edification in and of itself, but we pray, Lord, that as we begin to open it up, explain it, to expound upon it, to apply it, that, that you would uh, take that explanation and that application and apply it immediately and directly to our hearts and to our lives. Give us faith, Lord, to believe, establish our hearts in Christ and, and in your word, even this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So Isaiah chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now now to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ir Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, or, or, or on account of these two stubs of smoking firebrands, or on account of the fierce anger of Razan and Syria, and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of of Tebel. Thus says the the Lord God. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razan. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. 
the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house, days that have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah. Amen. <clears throat> As I said before we read the scripture, our special focus this evening will be to understand what the Lord is saying in the latter half of verse 9. When he says to Ahaz, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Our main point is something of an application taken from this text and taken from that verse and verse 9 in particular, and it is this. Rest securely in Jesus Christ, or else you will have no rest at all. I want to open up this text in three points. Consider the context here, a present danger. And then secondly, a reality check as Isaiah confronts King Ahaz. And then thirdly, a sign of grace, a sign of grace. We begin then this evening with a present danger. Consider with me the context. Isaiah chapter 7 is, is tied to a, a particular historical context that becomes something of a pivotal moment in the history of Judah, of the southern kingdom. By this time, the 12 tribes of Israel have already been divided between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Israel had her own king and had her own capital city, the city of Samaria and the territory of Ephraim. And similarly, Judah had her own king from the line of David, her own capital city, the city of David, in Jerusalem. Verse 1 places our, our passage in a historical context. It places it in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, which was the southern kingdom. This is around the year 735 B.C., Uzziah and Jotham were faithful men who, for the most part, walked in the ways of their father David. But Ahaz, where we are situated in this context here, Ahaz, king of Judah at that time, Ahaz had, be had become notoriously wicked. 
In fact, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 22. In 2 Chronicles 28, 22, it introduces Ahaz in this way. Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord, and then it says this, this is that King Ahaz, as if notorious, right? This is that King Ahaz. You know him, notoriously wicked. And and it's for that reason that Ahaz's wickedness, that we're told here in verse 1 that Razan, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against Judah, to make war against the southern kingdom, to make war against Ahaz and against the city of David. Again, notice here that the king of Assyria, excuse me, the king of Israel had aligned himself with the king of Syria in order to attack Judah, in order to attack Jerusalem. Now, I want you to make note of something here because it can get confusing. Assyria, put an A in front of it, right? Assyria is not the same as Syria, the nation of Syria. These are two different nations existing at the same time, but two different nations. So here, the king of Israel makes an alliance with the king of Syria. Why would he do that? Well, we have to recall a little bit of Bible history here. You remember that there are two main events, two main exiles and captivities that happened to Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. First, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, which is taken captive by the Assyrians. And then, sometime afterward, the southern kingdom of Judah was also taken captive by the Babylonians. And at this point in their history, neither exile had taken place. However, the Assyrian invasion was just about to happen. The Assyrian invasion was just about to happen. And Assyria, not Syria, but Assyria was a growing superpower in the ancient Near East at this time. And all of the surrounding nations could see the growing threat that was on the horizon. So what did they do? What did these nations do as they see this threat of this superpower of Assyria around them? What did they do to mitigate this threat? Well, Israel and Judah took slightly different approaches to this situation. Israel made alliances with Syria. That's what we see here in this text. Israel made alliances with Syria, hoping to deter the Assyrians from attacking them, thinking, right, their their strength in numbers. And so if we align ourselves together, perhaps Assyria will think twice of, of attacking one of us. If they attack one of us, they're essentially attacking both of us. Judah, however, and Ahaz in particular, tried to make friendly with the Assyrians. They, Ahaz in particular had a habit of flirting, flirting with the Assyrians, flirting with the idea of making treaties and alliances with them, right? If you can't beat them, then what? Join them. 
all of which increased then the threat upon Israel's border because they shared a border with Judah. And if Judah is making an alliance with this superpower, that's an additional threat for, for Israel who shares their, their border. So Pekah, the king of, of Israel in the north, he not only makes an alliance with Syria, but also joins them in attacking Judah. He's, he's trying to eliminate this threat by taking their, their capital city, Jerusalem, captive. And we have here in good summary fashion, we're told the conclusion of the whole matter at the end of verse 1, already at the end of verse 1, that they did not prevail, they could not prevail against them. They could not prevail against Jerusalem. And historically, they did not prevail against Jerusalem. So we're told this at the outset. But while these events are actually unfolding, Ahaz, of course, did not know whether they would prevail or whether they would not prevail. What he did know, however, was that that they, that Israel and Syria had united together, that they were camped in Ephraim along the border of Israel and Judah, only a day or two from Jerusalem. He knew that they were coming. He knew that they were near. He knew that war was imminent. This is what he knew. And so we're told in verse 2, knowing this, that his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And so he's, he's fearful, he's, he's anxious, his, his passions are stern, he's distressed. And it wasn't until Isaiah came to him that Ahaz was given greater insight. In verses 5 and 6, the prophet says to him, Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. And, he says, and set a king over them, the son of Tabel, or Tebel. In other words, their goal was not it was, it was to terrorize Judah, but not merely to terrorize Judah. It was to overtake Jerusalem. It was to replace King Ahaz with a no-name usurper. In fact, the name Tebel actually means good for nothing. I don't know who named this child, but, <laughs> but good for nothing. This is, this is someone, in other words, this is the point. It's someone not from the line of David. This is not a son of David. This is a mere patsy who would serve the political interests of the northern kingdom. This is a nobody. In, in, in the scheme of God's promises and his covenants to David, this is a nobody, and that's intentional. And so it was this, this present danger, what seemed like a a situation, a, a, um, a hopeless situation that unsettled Ahab's, Ahaz's heart like a tree that is tossed to and fro 
to and fro in the wind. And so the prophet of the Lord confronts a, a fearful and an anxious and an unbelieving Ahaz who is unhinged by the news of these things. He confronts him and he brings a reality check. So secondly, consider with me a reality check. Ahaz here, again, is unhinged. He's unhinged by what he perceives to be a dire and a hopeless situation. But in verse 3, the Lord sends Isaiah to him to, to establish his thinking, to settle his thinking, to settle his mind, to settle his heart, to declare the way that things really are. He's perceiving it a certain way, and he's unsettled, he's unhinged. But he sends Isaiah to settle him in his thinking, in his heart, and in his mind, to tell him the way that things really are, which he would be able to see for himself only if he would look upon his situation with the eyes of faith. Isaiah speaks with boldness, He speaks fearlessly to the king, and he says, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear. Take heed is to be watchful. To watch for what? Well, not for the enemies that are encamped on the border of his land, but to be heedful, to be watchful, watchful of the enemy within his own mind and within his own heart, right? Ahaz was faint-hearted because he was not placing his hope and his trust in the Lord. He was looking upon his situation, his circumstances, apart from faith, without faith, just the way that things appeared to the eye, to the naked eye. He was to take heed to himself. He was to take heed to how he was perceiving his circumstances. And so the Lord commands him through Isaiah to be quiet, to shut up, to to be calm, calm down. Do not be carried away by by your own passions. Take your thoughts captive to the obedience of God's word and and through faith begin to see the reality of your circumstances differently. See them as God sees them. See them in relation to God. See them with faith. The Lord says to him in verse 4, Do not fear or be faint-hearted for or I think a better translation, more, more clear translation would be this. Do not fear or be faint-hearted on account of these two stubs or smoking firebrands, on account of the, the king of, of Syria or the king of Israel, on account of the fierce anger of Razan or Syria and Syria and the son of Remaliah. And again in verse 7, Thus says the Lord God, their plotting shall not stand. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass, he says. See, there's the reality. Things appear one way to him, and he's interpreting those things apart from faith. But there's the reality that their plotting shall not stand. 
It shall not come to pass. That's the reality. It, it may not be the way things appear to the human eye, to the naked eye, but it is the way that things really are and really will be. These two kings, who were not long, if you look back in, in, the, um, in the book of Kings and, and Chronicles, these two kings were not long before a fierce fire running through the territory of Judah. And here they are about to come upon Jerusalem. They were a fierce fire running through the whole territory, but now, he says, they are smoking brands. They are a, a smoking stump of a tree, a fire that has already begun to burn out. They're nothing anymore, nothing to fear. The Lord of lords, the King of kings, will not allow their plan to stand. He will pour cold water upon their fire, upon their plans. And Ahaz is given the reason why for this. Why will their, their plan and their plotting not come to pass? He's given the reason in verse 8, beginning in verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within, and then there's this sort of parentheses, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. Now, it's, it's not immediately clear what the prophet's saying here, but I think it's this. Isaiah is saying, consider who your enemies are and consider who they are in relation to the Lord. Who are these people? They're the son of who and the son of what? Who are these people in relation to the Lord, in the relation to the Lord's covenant, in the relation to the Lord's promise? He's saying, the chief city of Syria is Damascus. And the chief leader in Damascus is Rezin. And who is Rezin to God? To his promises, to his covenants. Is he the Lord's anointed? Is he a son of David? Has God made a covenant with him? And moreover, the chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and, and its king is the son of Remaliah. And who is the son of Remaliah to God? Again, is he the Lord's anointed? Is he a son of David? No. In, in fact, in fact, this particular king was not even of royal descent. He was himself a usurper, who was an officer of the king's court who conspired against the king of Israel. 2 Kings 15 and verse 25. Even he was a nobody to God, to his covenant, to his promise. The Lord had made no covenant with him, no covenant with his house or his throne. Isaiah even adds that within a few years, Ephraim will not even exist. And we know this because they were soon to be carted off into exile. Like grass that is there one day, a flower that is there one day, and is gone and faded in the next. <clears throat> implied here, it's left off, but implied here is a comparison. Who are these? But then, okay, we could put it this way, the head of Judah is Jerusalem. And what is Jerusalem? It's the city of David. And the head of Jerusalem is who? The son of David. 
Now, David, of course, was the Lord's anointed to whom a promise was given, to whom a covenant and with whom a covenant was made. We read this in the scripture of, of David and of his kingdom, of his household. The Lord says, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And this ultimately is the reason, this is the reason why their plan to take um, captive the city of Jerusalem and to usurp the throne of David in that place at that time, why it shall not come to stand, stand, come to pass. It is not because Ahaz is personally significant and important or deserving of God's protection and favor. He was a notoriously wicked man. But rather, the reason is, is that the Lord would preserve the house of David. The Lord would fulfill his covenant to David. And he would do this with or without Ahaz. With or without Ahaz, their plan to defile the throne of David will not stand. The Lord may or may not preserve Ahaz, and we'll see what happens, but regardless, he will at that time preserve Jerusalem. He will preserve the city of David. Isaiah is is calling Ahaz to repent. He's calling Ahaz to put his trust in the promises of God, the, the covenant that the Lord God made with David and his house. He's calling upon Ahaz to remember the covenant, to remember the word of God, to remember the promises of God, to remember the faithfulness of God, and to put his trust in God. To call upon the Lord for help, to fulfill his word, to be that he himself would be established on the side of God's plan, of God's promises, of God's word and God's covenant. Jerusalem shall be preserved. But what about Ahaz himself? Isaiah personally warns him at the end of verse 9. He says, If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. In other words, you will not stand. If you will not believe, you will not stand. Jerusalem will stand, but if you will not believe, you shall not be established. A question is implicitly posed to Ahaz. You know, who is the son of Remaliah to God, to his covenant, to his plan and purpose of salvation who is um, who is uh, the, the king of Syria or the king of Israel in relation to God and his covenant and promises and now there's an implicit question to Ahaz who are you who are you in relation to God who are you in relation to the covenant given to the house of David on the one hand he is a a son of David But is he walking in the steps of his father, 
David. The plotting of these kings will not stand. The promises of God will be fulfilled. But where do you, Ahaz, stand in relation to these promises, in relation to his saving purposes and plans? And how Ahaz answers this question will seal not only his own fate, whether he himself will remain standing, but also the fate of the nation in the generations to come. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Isaiah brings a a, a reality check. But Ahaz must first believe the word of God before his heart and his mind can be established in the way things really are before he can see the way things really are. He must look upon his situation with the eyes of faith before his heart and his mind can be settled with a quiet confidence in the Lord himself. That brings us then lastly to a sign of grace. A sign of grace. Ahaz, so our third point, a sign of grace. Ahaz was not persuaded, he was not moved. He was moved by everything else, but he was not moved by Isaiah's counsel and revelation, which shows then the abundant generosity and graciousness of what we then read in verse 10. Not being persuaded due to his unbelief, We read this, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. There are not many times that the Lord invites a person to ask a sign from him or of him to, to establish him in the faith, to ground him in the truth, give him confidence in the word of God which is always sure and amen but he gave he gave Ahaz this opportunity gave him yet another opportunity to place his trust in the Lord which is in and of itself a sign of grace right what is he doing he's stooping down to Ahaz he's stooping down to his weakness and he offers him a miraculous sign ask anything that he might be persuaded to put his trust in the Lord. But Ahaz's mind was made up. He was settled in his unbelief. He did not want to be persuaded otherwise, and so he he self-righteously says in verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That sounds that sounds pious. It sounds good, but you see what he's doing. He's He's, part of it is we, we know this man. We, that is, this, is, that, this is that Ahaz. We know this man and his notorious wickedness. You know what he's doing. He's, he's concealing his wickedness behind an, an appearance of piety. It's nothing new under the sun. He, he, is, he is concealing his own wickedness under the appearance of piety, his vice behind the, the name of virtue. 
It is not testing the Lord. It is not tempting the Lord to accept what God himself graciously offers. Really commands. Ask me of a sign. No, I will not. I'm too pious for that. It's not a test to accept what the Lord offers. Unless Ahaz is suggesting that the Lord is here tempting him to do something evil, which of course he is not. Isaiah sees through his pious facade, and so he says, you hear his tone change in verse 13. He says, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but you will weary my God also? Notice Notice how Isaiah spoke of your God in verse 11, but his tone changes here. Now he speaks of my God in verse 13. Ahaz has tried the patience of the Lord for too long. What was intended as a a sign to to strengthen Ahaz's faith is now given, he's given a sign, insofar as it relates to Ahaz, a sign that is a seal of his judgment and is a sign of of the madness of his own unbelief. Notice verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You know who this is speaking of. To be sure, this prophecy is speaking of the miraculous virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the the ultimate, the true and ultimate son of David, in whom we have no surer sign that that God's covenant to, to David has been fulfilled. It has been fulfilled notwithstanding every scheme and plotting of man. You remember Psalm 2. The nations rage and the the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed, but how does God respond? He laughs. He laughs and he declares, I will notwithstanding all of that, I will set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him, him, Emmanuel, God with us, God among us, the God-man, in whom Ahaz sadly failed to trust. With or without Ahaz, the Lord will establish his word in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But apart from Ahaz actually believing God, actually trusting in him to fulfill his saving purposes in and through this future son of David, apart from that, apart from him believing, Ahaz will himself not be established. He will not be established neither with God nor with his saving purposes but he will remain laid open to the very judgment of God. If you will not believe, you surely shall not be established. Until we rest securely in Jesus Christ, we will have no rest 
at all. Ahaz and the nation through him had rejected the grace of God. And so Isaiah says in verse 16, he says, Before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread, it's confusing. He's speaking there just simply about the, the divided kingdom and, and the situation that he's dreading. The, 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 the land of Israel and Judah, the, the, the promised land here, will be forsaken by both her kings, he says. And that, so he's saying, before either Israel or Judah are given the opportunity to see and to experience the fulfillment of the promise, both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and their kings, will be dragged into exile. He, he has just secured the, the judgment of the southern kingdom by his own unbelief. In verse 17, the prophet speaks personally of Ahaz. And, and I'm going to read it. Let me, let me read it from the text. And then, that is from our translation, then I want to read it the way that it reads in the, in the Hebrew. So verse 17 from our translation. The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days that have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Okay, same, same stuff, but different order. This is how it reads in the Hebrew. The Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house. What do you think Ahaz is thinking? What, what, is, what is the Lord going to bring upon them? Well, think of the context. The king of, of Israel and Syria that have aligned themselves together, that are encamped at the border, right? I'm going to bring them upon you. That's not what he says. He says, the Lord will bring upon you and your people and your father's house, and then there's this parenthesis, days that are not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, and then it ends with this, the king of Assyria. Dun, dun, dun. Right? It's, it's, E.J. Young expresses it nicely. He says, something of the grandeur pertains to the manner, the manner in which these verses work up to this climax. There are two great coming figures. To the people of God, Emmanuel will bring salvation. To Ahaz and those who followed him, the king of Assyria will bring destruction. Rather than trusting in the Lord, in the Lord God of hosts, high and lifted up to save him. What did Ahaz do historically? Ahaz trusted, ended up trying to establish himself standing, as it were, in, in his circumstances by making an alliance with the king of Assyria. And so with a sort of poetic justice, the Lord says, it is by not the king of Israel, not the king of Syria, but the king of Assyria that you shall be judged. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The, the, the Lord has a, a sense of, of, of irony. By way of conclusion, <clears throat> really, it's, it's, it's the idol. It's, it's really the one in whom he trusted that brings upon him and the nation his downfall. Um, by way of conclusion, 
consider with me just a few implications then um, and uses derived from what the Lord says at the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Just three things. They sort of follow one after another. First, unbelief is madness. It's madness. It is madness that Ahaz refused the gracious help of the Lord and turned to the Assyrians of all people. It's madness that he refused the gracious help of the Lord. Though the Lord declared to him the way that things really are, he was blinded by his own unbelief. It's madness. He was blinded by his own pride to think that he could save himself by his own plotting, his own scheming, unaware of the real danger, which was not the enemies from without, but the enemy within his own heart, his own unbelief, the real danger that he faced was the unbelief that made him, made, him, made him an enemy of God. He was blinded to his real problem, to the real judgment that stood upon the horizon, to the reality of where he stood in relation to God, under the judgment of God, blind even to the sweetness of the offer of the Lord's salvation. How many today live as though they were kings, sufficient to rule their own lives and to save themselves, yet they are restless, they are empty, they are unsatisfied, and they are disquieted within themselves and blind to both the dreadfulness of God's judgment upon them and the graciousness of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Ahaz was a king yet he could not save himself. It's no coincidence that in chapter 6, Isaiah stood in the presence of the king, the king of glory, the Lord of hosts, sitting upon his throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple, surrounded by seraphim, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah understood this. Who is who is Rezim? Who is the son of Remaliah? Who is Ahaz? Who are the Assyrians? And who are you in relation to the king of glory? Holy, holy, holy. Can you see your own situation for what it really is? Even if you are a king and you are not, you cannot save yourself. If you will not believe, then surely you will not understand these things and you, no, you will not be able to see yourself and your situation for what it really is. You will not be able to see the gracious offer of the gospel for what it really is. Unbelief is madness. That we would sooner be miserable than happy, restless, than satisfied and quieted, opposed to God and his anointed, than established with God through his anointed. What madness. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. That is the reality of the thing. 
Secondly, be established then with God through faith in Christ. Where do you stand in relation to God, in relation to the promises of God, in relation to his saving purposes, or in relation to the ultimate sign which he has given to us of our salvation? coming of the person and of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To us, a child has been born. He has been, the Lord Jesus Christ. God with us, Emmanuel, who as the God-man lived and died and was raised from the dead for our salvation, to establish us with God that we might stand in that day, that we might stand in the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Christ, who in satisfying the wrath and the curse of God in his life and in his death on our behalf, has single-handedly purchased our redemption, has vanquished our foes. Who are you in relation to him? If you will not believe, you have no relation to him, no saving relation to him, and you surely shall not be established. We cannot be established with God until our hearts and minds rest in Jesus Christ, until we come to him empty-handed, humbled, broken and needy, fleeing to Christ, fleeing from the wrath to come, Fleeing to Christ. Apart from Christ, the judgment of God hangs over us as if hopelessly encamped at the border of our land. Only in the Lord Jesus Christ do we have the sure promise that there is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ does he say, in the best way possible, take heed and quiet your soul. Do not fear or be faint-hearted. And yet, if you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Thirdly and lastly, if our souls rest in Christ for salvation we will also be able to rest in the midst of our present dangers and afflictions. Being established in Christ, we shall be able to stand, to stand in the Lord and in the power and strength of his might. Stand, then, in the Lord, Paul says. The Lord Jesus reigns, not upon some throne in Jerusalem, but upon the throne of God in heaven. Though our circumstances often tempt us to think otherwise, the Lord reigns. Ahaz neither believed this nor understood it, and therefore his heart was tossed to and fro like a tree in the wind. Brothers and sisters, Faith establishes us. It, it plants our feet firmly with the Lord and in his word. 
so that we are enabled to interpret our circumstances and our trials by that same word, by the light of his word and through, through the eyes of faith. If God is for us in Christ, if he is Christ who is high and lifted up, governing and directing all things for the good of his people and in order to bring us unto glory, then who or what can ultimately be against us? If you are not believing, surely your hearts and your minds shall not be established by this truth. But take heed to yourself. And be quiet. Rest in him, or else you will have no rest at all. Establish your hearts and your minds in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in this glorious truth that our Lord our Lord reigns. Amen. Let us pray. <clears throat> Our Father, I pray that this word would, will have been unto our edification to build us up in the faith, to establish us more firmly in the faith of the gospel and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith then in our Lord who, who lived, who died, and who lives evermore and is seated at the right hand of God on our behalf and is from there leading many sons to glory. We have in him nothing more to fear, much to endure, but nothing more to fear. And so calm our hearts, enable us who rest in Christ to to experience and find that rest even in the midst of, of the trials and afflictions that we do endure this side of glory. Establish us, we pray, as those who are believing, believing unto the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.